Last week, <clears throat> I tried to encourage you. The writer to the Hebrews <clears throat> gave uh, the readers an admonition to be sure they were of those that had trusted Christ alone for their salvation. Many of the Jewish folks were struggling to see how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic promises, and they were tempted to fall back into their traditional mosaic forms of worship. It's what they knew. It's what the Jews had done for a thousand years. Why would we abandon it now? But the writer encourages the Hebrews to press on, to follow hard after Christ, and to live in the reality of salvation. I'm really careful with my words there. To live in the reality of salvation in Jesus rather, rather than the shadow of temple worship. The purpose of temple worship was to point the people to Christ. And now that he had come, the writer is saying, look, why would you head back to the shadow when the reality has come? <clears throat> in a similar way, <clears throat> pardon me, in a similar way, I tried to encourage us to be aware that the Christian life is a transformed life. Your life before you trusted Christ, sorry, your life before you trusted Christ should look different than it does now. Now it should be a life of walking in the Spirit, bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. Our God is a God of unfailing promise, strong consolation, and hope. That's what the passage gave us last week. Our God is a God of unfailing promise, strong consolation, and hope. You have not shed a tear that he does not keep in a bottle. He remembers that you are dust. One of the challenges that face us now as we continue into chapter 7 of Hebrews is presenting the intense and sometimes complicated argument that the writer gives us in a way that is edifying to each of us. The next four chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10, are a huge, long, extended set of, um, well, an extended argument to show how Christ is better as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the challenge is now, section by section, to present something that isn't just going to our brain as information, but something that challenges us to live for Christ week by week, and that's, that is a challenge. Chapters 7 through 10 of Hebrews is a long, complicated presentation of the central idea of the entire letter to the Hebrews. Christ is better. For myself, <clears throat> and I'm guessing for maybe one or two of you, I would love to jump into the deep end of the next four chapters and swim as deep as I can. That's just my personality, and I enjoy that sort of thing. Unfortunately, I think that would leave many of us feeling just a little dry and maybe even confused. <clears throat> so, by the grace of God, what I would rather do is to take some principles from the coming passages and use them as a springboard for each of us in, to enter into deeper devotion to the one who is our high priest. I recognize, by the way, when going into scripture, 
that there is one correct interpretation for any given passage of scripture. It's the author's, God's. But God's word is living and powerful and even in all our varied circumstances, there's folks in here going through a huge range of uh, usually difficulties in their life and it's one of the reasons that you've come this morning. We need to be in God's word because life isn't gonna give us a break. Why should we take a break from God's word? Life is hard and as we're walking through life, we're confronted with a huge range of things that weigh us down and make us feel discouraged and make us feel as though uh, we're not quite sure how to proceed. And here's God's word with one correct interpretation and yet because it's God's word and application for each of our hearts. We can take something from God's word today to encourage us and to lift us up and to help us to continue to move forward. There are many applications. There is one interpretation. There are many applications. So here we go. Let's read Hebrews chapter 7 and the first 10 verses. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 7 and the first 10 verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, and indeed those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have, become, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're just so grateful again that we can gather with like-minded folks, folks that have needs just like we have needs and have pains and hurts and loneliness and all of the things that come from living in a broken world. And yet we are here to hear from your word this morning. And so I pray that by your spirit, your word would be opened up to us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see he's getting back into this idea of Melchizedek. He, he, uh, the author began to talk about how Christ is better than the angels and continues to give examples of how Christ is better. And then he pauses. He brings up Melchizedek and then he pauses and he says, look, you guys, this is going to be hard. And, 
and some of you aren't going to be able to understand it because you just haven't been working at it the way you should have been working at it from the time you became Christians. So it's going to be hard. So what I want to do now is to make sure that you are those in whom the word of God has been planted and it's taken root and has grown up into salvation and be encouraged that you are Christ's and press on with him and and move on with him because that's what he desires a deeper and more meaningful relationship with you because as you walk with him that that crop continues to bear fruit and then he's he goes back and says okay well let's talk about Melchizedek and he wasn't kidding it's hard the next four chapters it's no cakewalk okay it is difficult to go through. I would encourage each of you to read chapters 7 through 10 daily, several times a day for the next several weeks and, and just see if you are not growing in understanding each time you read it um, because it's not a one read sort of passage. It's one of those that we need to be immersed in. And uh, and then I'll let you do that hard work while I do the easy work of just making application here for you. Maybe we'll have a Sunday evening class or two to talk about Melchizedek. I think that might be fruitful. So here we go. God has given Abraham as an example for us. When we look back at chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, and chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, and a bit of the intro that I talked about, what you will see is the writer says, look at Abraham, a man of faith and patience, and you too need to be a people of faith and patience. And so the writer finds common ground with the readers to persuade them of the truth in Christ. Who is it that he's writing to? Jewish folks, some of, who, some of whom are believers and others of whom may not be. That's who he's writing to. And so he says, do you know what? Let's find common ground. Where can we find common ground to talk about how we need to, to move forward, talking about Melchizedek? Well, what about Abraham? That's pretty good common ground. They understood Abraham. They admired Abraham. And so he goes back to Abraham and says, here's, here's some common ground we can talk about. Something from the Old Testament. So. These readers were still trouble, troubled, obviously. That's one of the reasons that the letter was written. They were troubled by the fact that Jesus was not of the priestly line of Aaron. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is high priest, better than the priestly line. And these, these readers are going, wait a minute, the priestly line is through Aaron. And we know for a fact that Jesus came through Judah troubled them and maybe rightfully it troubled them how could this Jesus be great high priest if he was descended from Judah the line of kings the ancient Jewish rabbis tried to solve this difficulty of the idea of a prophet greater than Moses and a priest and a king by presenting the idea that Maybe more than one person was coming to be involved in the deliverance of the Jewish people. And we see evidence of this thinking in John chapter 1. And we'll read a few chapters there in John chapter 1, 
verses 19 through 27. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? Because they knew that Elijah was going to come before Christ came, before the Messiah came. And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked John, saying, why then do you Pardon me, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Do you see the thinking? They read in the writings particularly of Moses, there was going to be a prophet to come. And this prophet was maybe going to be different than the Messiah that was to come. So they were trying to put together these ideas. Who, how could this possibly be one person to fulfill all of these things? It just doesn't fit for us that this could be one person. So you can see that thinking there in, in first century Judaism. It baffled them that one person could be priest and king because they came from different genealogical lines. The priesthood through Levi or Aaron and the kings through Judah. Knowing this, the writer of Hebrews finds indisputable common ground with the Jewish readers to begin his presentation of Christ as priest. The writings of Moses. Look, you guys are Jewish. You want to know how Christ is priest, is priest for us? Let's go to Moses. What does Moses say? Well, instantly they're on board, aren't they? Okay, we understand Moses. We read Moses all of the time. Okay, Moses, here we go. We have found common ground. Let's move forward. And then he selects, the writer selects, a seemingly obscure, tiny little passage in Genesis 14. There's only three verses there to show Jesus as high priest. It's brilliant. The brief point that I want to make here, and this isn't the main point of my message, but it's a brief point that I want to make, and I think that all of us can take something away from it, is this. If a person has intellectual objections to the truth of Christianity, it would be irresponsible and disrespectful to them to tell them to just believe. They have questions. They're not sure. Like these readers, they weren't sure. How is it that Christ can be priest? And the writer could have written, look, you guys, just have faith. Just believe it, okay? And they're going, I, it doesn't make sense to me. Just believe it. But that's not what the writer did. What did the writer do? He found common ground. Where can we go to something we agree? and begin our discussion there. 
find some common ground with the folks that you deal with in order to begin to lead them to the truth of the resurrection. That's what the goal is, isn't it? The cross and the resurrection. That's where we want these discussions to get to. The truth of the cross and the truth of the resurrection. For you younger folks, it's more difficult. Maybe, the, maybe you need to go all the way back to the existence of God or the existence of objective moral values. Some things are right and some things are wrong. Maybe you all have to go all the way back there. Or even all the way back to whether there's even truth or not. Dig as deep as you need to in order to put a stone in that person's shoe. For those of you that are a bit older, you don't generally have to go that far back. Because you've grown up in a generation where there is at least on the surface, some sort of reference, reverence for the truth of the Bible and the existence of God. So you have a good spot to start from. And that's good. That is as it ought to be. So older folks in general have that respect for the Bible or at least the existence of God. So for those of you that are a little bit older, begin there. Show them the scriptures that present Christ and his salvation most clearly. For those of you in younger generations, it can be much more difficult. How, how deep do you have to go to find common ground? Many of us are growing up in a generation identified by skepticism. We may have to be prepared to go much deeper to find common ground. And you think, well, what are you talking about? Where are you getting this from? When Paul went to the synagogues, he used the Old Testament scriptures to show the Jews the truth of the resurrection. He found common ground. He went back as far as he needed to, and that was the Old Testament scriptures. They were Jewish folks. They read the Old Testament scriptures every week and believed them to be the word of God. So he went to them and said, look, you believe this is the word of God? Here's the resurrection. Here's this Jesus whom you crucified rose again. And you all know that he rose again. He was preaching, uh, a lot of the apostles began their preaching right in Jerusalem. And so he found common ground and began to point to the cross and the resurrection for these Jewish folks. When he went to the Gentiles, he went all the way back to the existence of one true God and the fact that there's a right and a wrong. And he started there and work toward the cross and the empty tomb. The goal was the same, whether he was in the synagogues speaking to the Jews who trusted the scriptures, or whether he was out in the open area speaking to Greeks and Greek philosophers, the goal was the same, the cross and the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection. How are we gonna get there? Sometimes we get bogged down, don't we? Any of you have had conversations about with someone who's a non-believer. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about when God ordered the soldiers to kill the Canaanite children? And, and the objections can go here and there and every rabbit trail you can imagine. And you find yourself trying to answer this and this and this and this and this. And I think we need to simplify it. The cross and the resurrection. Never mind the Canaanites. The cross and the resurrection. How do we get there? 
What do you think of Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? That's where we want the conversation to get to. Those, all those other things can be dealt with later. Because once you get to understanding who Jesus is correctly, and Jesus is God, and therefore everything Jesus believes is true, and Jesus believed the Old Testament was the inspired word of God, now you've solved all those problems in the person of Christ. So that needs to be our goal when we're speaking with someone. Where do we have to go to to get to a foundation to move to the cross and the empty tomb? Wherever Paul went, Acts describes his missionary work as persuasion, which seems odd to some of us. Let's look at Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 4. Then Paul, as his custom was, like he did all the time, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. On the Sabbath, in the synagogue. Why? Because they knew the scriptures to be the word of God. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The cross and the empty tomb from the scriptures. Found a place. Okay, this is, this is the writings we know to be true. Let's start here. And he reasoned with them and explained and demonstrated to them from the scriptures the cross and the empty tomb. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. Ah, I can believe that now. I am persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, those Greek folks, those Gentiles that had embraced Judaism, and not a few of the leaning, leading women joined Paul and Silas. He found common ground, and he took them to the cross and the empty tomb. Acts chapter 18, verse 4. And Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. He reasoned and he persuaded. Now, it would be a lot easier if we just told people to just believe. That would require no effort on our part. We wouldn't have to get into the word and study at all. We could just tell people to believe. Believe and trust. Believe and trust. Believe and trust. And they're going, I can't choose to believe something that doesn't seem true to me. So why not demonstrate? Here's why it's true. Here's why it's true. But unfortunately, folks, this means you're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to be in the Word, and you're going to have to be in the Word regularly so that you understand what God has in there for you and for the folks that he's going to bring into your sphere. Acts chapter 28, getting close to the end of the book there. The beginning of 17 says, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. See who he's talking to? The leader of the Jews. Okay, so what does he do? Well, down a few verses to 23 and 24. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, 
persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could go from morning till evening through the scriptures explaining Christ. I don't think I'm that thorough yet. And some were persuaded. Ah, I see the truth now. Thank you. Thank you for showing me the truth in the scriptures by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. I won't believe that. Now my challenge to you is I've given you a few examples of how, how it is that Paul dealt with folks that trusted in the Old Testament scriptures. That's exactly where he went. You trust the Old Testament scriptures to be the word of God? Let me show you Christ in these places that you know are the word of God. Let me show you the cross. Let me show you the empty tomb. And some may be persuaded. I see Christ. I've heard of Jewish folks that read Isaiah 53. And they were like, that can't be anyone but Jesus Christ. And were converted. My challenge to you is read Acts chapter 17. And Paul has an encounter with folks that had never encountered the Jewish scriptures. So what did he do? Look at what Isaiah says. Look at what Moses says. It's not what he did. They, they would be like, who are they? I don't know who they are. I can't trust those writings. So what did he do? Well, that's your job. You go to Acts chapter 17. You read how Paul dealt with folks that didn't have a foundation of scripture or of truth. He had to go deeper. For some of you, especially you younger generation, you have to be prepared to go deeper. That's hard work. But it's worth it. The Holy Spirit used Paul's persuasion to bring people to Christ. The Holy Spirit can use all sorts of things to bring people to Christ. And in this case, he used Paul and the way he presented the scriptures to these folks to introduce the cross and the empty tomb. It's never in the absence of the work of the Spirit of God. Never, ever, ever. You will never be persuasive enough minus the Spirit of God to change anyone's mind. It's through God's Spirit using whatever tool that, that he has given to you that people will begin to understand the truth. So it begins with prayer, of course. Chapter 6 gives us permission to draw parallels between Abraham as a man of faith and ourselves as a people of faith. So verses 13 and 14 of chapter 6 tell us how God made a promise to Abraham <clears throat> to give him hope in a time of great need. <clears throat> in verses 17 and 18, the writer moves from talking about Abraham to talking about we as a people who might have strong consolation and hope as we flee to Christ. See the transition there? From Abraham to we now can have strong consolation as we flee to the refuge of Christ. <clears throat> so, because the writer of Hebrews gives us permission to draw some, some parallels between our lives and the lives of Abraham, I think that we can do that. And then, the writer gives us permission to see God 
that see that God has given Melchizedek as a type of Christ. He is called the priest of the Most High God. It is the first time in the Bible, this is Genesis chapter 14, it's the first time in the Bible that the word priest is used. Kohen or Kohen. It predates the Mosaic priesthood by 400 years. So there was an understanding of someone being a priest well before the Levitical priesthood. It is interesting to note, or I found it interesting, that this phrase, Most High God, is a title for God, for the God of the Israelites, often used by Gentiles, for example, like Nebuchadnezzar, and then in the New Testament, by demons. So to me, it seems like it presents a realization of an entire spiritual realm with God as the absolute authority. Remember, for example, Nebuchadnezzar. He had a huge variety of gods that he worshipped. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace and were entirely delivered. So Nebuchadnezzar, in his thinking, went from there's something, there, there's a God that is the most high God. These other gods are just, they're nothing. But there is the most high God. So there's an understanding of a spiritual realm and the one who is the supreme authority. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Melchizedek's title means king of peace. Salem, which was ancient Jerusalem. You see the connection there. Salem, you've heard different Jewish folks, they greet each other, they say shalom which is an idea of peace, an overwhelming and abundant uh, peace due to the authority of God in the world. Shalom, Salem, Jerusalem, king, and this was, sorry, and this was Melchizedek, the king of Shalom. The writer to Hebrews tells us. So, he's a priest of the Most High God. His name means king of righteousness. His title means king of peace, priest and king. And Melchizedek remains a priest forever. The writer of Hebrews here is not saying that Melchizedek is some sort of appearance, appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ or some sort of theophany. He is simply looking at the text of Scripture as inspired by the Holy Spirit. I want you to take some comfort in here about the inspiration of the word of God. He looks at the names for Melchizedek to show he is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. The Holy Spirit inspired each word of the text, even in the recording of the names. And that's why the writer to Hebrews can confidently use every single word. Better than that. He also noticed that this man is given it's given no genealogy, nor is his death recorded in Scripture, unlike Levi or Aaron, where their, where their genealogy is given. So-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot Levi, and Levi died. 
not Melchizedek. He shows up, blam, and he disappears, blam. So the writer of Hebrews is even using what the Bible leaves out to show how God has made him a type of Christ in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit left these details out to more surely portray, portray him as a type of Christ. Remember we went through the life of Joseph. And we said, look at these things that happened in Joseph's life. And they are recorded in a particular way. And we could see, because of the way they were recorded in Scripture, we could see, ah, God is pointing us to a truth that was to come thousands of years later. Because they were recorded by God, inspired by his Spirit. Same thing with Melchizedek, just on a much smaller scale. We only have three verses. He's called priest of the Most High God. His name means king of righteousness. His title means king of peace. He remains a priest forever. And he is made like the Son of God. This is the only time in the New Testament the Greek verb translated made like is used. I'm not going to try and pronounce it as something, something, something. Vine's Expository Dictionary says something very interesting. It says the following. Melchizedek as made like the Son of God in the facts related and withheld in the Genesis record. God inspired what was to be written and what was not to be written about Melchizedek. It's a really difficult word to translate it. Literally, it means something like to bring out of a similar essence or to make a facsimile. Don't want to spend too much time on that, but I do want to spend some time on this. Notice the word order. Melchizedek is made like the Son of God, and yet in our brains sometimes we think, oh, Christ came and he was made like Melchizedek. Wrong. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Genesis 14. And here's this Melchizedek made like the Son of God. Jesus Christ in Genesis 14. And then he goes on to say, in a sense, and I don't want to dig too deep here, it's complicated and, and maybe not so helpful right now. Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so without getting into the complex details of verses 4 through 10, the fact that Melchizedek received tithes from others shows that he is better than or superior to them, at least in the spiritual hierarchy. And it's like the writer is saying, and you thought Levi was great? You thought Levi was great. Look at this. Levi's grandfather paid tithes to this man who was pointing to Jesus Christ. So Levi isn't as great as you think he is, but this Melchizedek sure is. And he's the one that points us to Christ. So finally now, consider we've, we've looked at Abraham sort of as kind of like us. We can draw some parallels. We've looked at Melchizedek as a type of Christ. So let's look at the relationship between Abraham and Melchizedek because they had an interaction. Melchizedek met Abraham in the tumult of life. Warring, battling, people making his life miserable. Difficult times. And Melchizedek comes out 
and meets Abraham. Christ often comes out and meets us in the tumult of life, doesn't he? Anybody that's lived long enough, and I've said that before, things get really hard sometimes. And then Christ makes an appearance. He was there all along, and he just reminds you that here he is, he's close. And life is hard, but here he is. He meets us in the difficulties of life. Melchizedek, look what he brought to Abraham. Bread and wine. There's some commentators, I read a few commentators that really thought, oh, this is nothing, it's not really a big deal. I think this is a big deal because if Melchizedek's name and each word was inspired in his name and his title, how could this not also be significant? So when Abraham meets with Melchizedek, he brings bread and he brings wine. Well, (laughs) I wrote down this phrase. When I read this again for the first time, think about that for a little bit, I immediately thought of John chapter 6. Let's go there. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 47. Jesus speaking. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus comes and offers us life because of his death and resurrection. So he meets you in the tumult of your life and he offers you that bread which when you eat of it, you're never hungry because that bread sustains you through the end. I just thought of that Melchizedek bringing bread and wine to Abraham as Christ brought his flesh and blood to us saying, live, eat and live. Well, of course, some of the Jews were very troubled by this. How could he say, eat my flesh? And of course, he goes on to say later on, and you can look at it. um, So you're troubled by what I'm saying? My words are spirit. I'm telling you way more than what you're seeing on the surface. You partake of me. Your life consists in me. My words are spirit. The other thing he says that is really powerful, because they're like, Jesus says to them, well, are you going to leave too? Because some people said, this is too hard for me to understand. And he says to some of his other disciples, are you going to leave too? And he says, uh, and the disciples say, how could we leave? You have the words of eternal life. How could we possibly leave? Anyway, it's powerful passage, and I see some of it there in Genesis 14. 
<clears throat> I think maybe I was planning on reading that and forgot, but that's okay. You guys can read those few verses, Genesis 14, 18 to 20. I think they're in your words, but um, we'll finish up here. We're running out of time. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and blessed God. <clears throat> There's so much I could talk about here. There's one mediator between God and man. There, on and on and on the scriptures began to pop into my mind as I see that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and blessed God. This Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham. Can you imagine the shock that would have been to the Jews? What? Melchizedek greater than Abraham? Well, he just showed it from the writings of Moses. Yes, he was. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, <clears throat> and it's always the greater who blesses the lesser. Well, <clears throat> the scripture that popped into my mind here was John chapter 8. Some of you are thinking of it already too. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 52, and then we'll close. Considering all that the writer to the Hebrews has talked about here in these 10 verses regarding Abraham and Melchizedek, Melchizedek being like Christ. Look at these scriptures again. Then the Jews said to Jesus, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham, <coughs> pardon me, Abraham is dead, and the prophets. <coughs> and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? The answer is yes. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. So I'm not going to tell you. You figure it out. It's in the scriptures. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and <clears throat> have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Powerful, powerful words. And when we see what the writer to the Hebrews is doing with the type of Christ Melchizedek, this begins to take on even more power and more beauty as absolutely, yes, Christ is greater than Abraham. Abraham paid tithes to the type what a beautiful picture this is. Wonderful reading. Let's pray. <clears throat>